Hi, I'm Steve Goldstein, and this is the Pivotal Voices podcast on my Substack. My guest for this episode is Sean Daniels. He's a playwright, theater director, artistic director. He spent many of his formative years in the Valley and then led Arizona Theater Company and helped to get out of a significant financial struggle before he moved on to Florida to be involved with theater there. And he's receiving plaudits and enthusiastic reviews for his autobiographical play, The White Chip, which is currently running off-Broadway. And the show has attracted some significant names in entertainment as well as producers. Some names like Hank Azaria, Edie Falco, and Jason Biggs. Sean and I talked about theater, addiction, and recovery, all of which coalesce in the production of The White Ship. Here's my conversation with Sean Daniels. How much of writing a play or being involved in the performance of a play has to be from the most personal part of you? And how challenging has it been over your career to to let that loose to the public, or has it not been that challenging? You know, when we were working on The Lion, which was Benjamin Schwer's show that we did um, uh, in New York and Arizona Theater Company and, and is about to launch a, a world tour, the thing that we said to ourselves over and over again was, if you want to write a good song, write something that you don't want the audience to know about you. And if you want to write a great song, write something that you don't want to know about yourself. <laughs> and I take the same note when working on something like The White Chip because it feels like um, it should feel dangerously honest. It should feel like, you know, your the audience feels like, wow, this is this is the real thing that I'm watching in front of me. Um, you know, I work with a lot of people who do kind of one person shows or shows about their own life and the most common mistake they make is to always portray themselves as a very charming person that a series of unfortunate events has happened to. <laughs> uh, because that's how that's how we all think about our life, you know. And so to be able to put a, a piece together, I think you have to really own what it is about yourself that has been tough, your role in it. Um, you know, if you think about the uh, great Christmas movie of all time, Die Hard, it, you know, like he he has to walk. He forgets his shoes, so he has to walk across broken glass to be able to get there. And the audience loves him for it, you know. And so I, I think um, when we're doing any piece of theater, you know, that that's, that feels like it wants to be somewhat real, I feel like you have to have that level of honesty with it because then people can relate to it. Then, you know, if you say, like, I'm amazing and things are great, people go like, well, that's not my story. But if you say, like, I think I've screwed up the vast majority of things in my life, the audience goes, I'm with you. That, you know, like, that's how I feel on a daily basis. So I feel like that level of honesty is, I think, really what engages the audience. And, you know, that you think about what are the, what does theater do that no other art form can do? And so you're with the people, you know, they're, they're saying it right to you. They're, you're in a group of people. And so I think when there's that level of honesty and, uh, two thirds of the audience relates to it. That's, that's amazing. That's a feeling you can't get on your phone or you can't get on the TV is, you know, a group of audience members suddenly realizing that they, they understand exactly where you've been. But did it take you a while to get there? And I ask because certainly the impact of what you're describing is it's, it's so manifests itself over and over again. And yet there is that, I mean, isn't there that temptation to continue to say, well, I can do good work by just acting like I'm a charming person who's had some some pitfalls as opposed to the other way. Um, what was the trial and error for you to get there? Yeah, you know, uh, it's, it's another great question. 
I feel like I did that at first, right? So my story is like, you know, I, I had a high profile job. I got fired from it. I, I got sober. I had friends who kind of offered me ways to get back into the field and continue working. And for a while, I did try to act like uh, I just happened to have not been around for the last year and a half. And now I'm back and everything's exactly the same. And I think that worked for a little bit but but actually what you find out is that the like your your biggest traumas can actually become your largest superpowers so actually what i was doing in those days was denying myself the thing that was so specific and powerful about me which was to be able to talk about how you can get through an event like that and still thrive so i actually think i was doing a disservice to myself and not um really working at the highest level I could because I was pretending like everything was exactly the same as before. And and now I feel like I'm able to to talk about those things and to really have it as a superpower to be like, I'm able to connect these people. I'm able to talk about things that nobody else is talking about and, and to be able to infuse that into our work, but also to be able to have like joy in all of it. I mean, when you're kind of pretending like it didn't happen, you are, you're robbing any sense of joy from it. So I just think like now, now we can do it and now we can have, you know, big laughs and, and conversations and, and irony and, you know, subversive laughs and, and all the things that audiences and, and I think artists and individuals love. But you have to kind of own it first to be able to be in a place to do that. How do you write such a personal play like this and have it be entertaining, heartfelt without being preachy? Um, you have to involve a lot of other people <laughs> in your process of, of how it comes together. Um, you know, even... I mean, I would write and write and, um, you know, I had a great team and I had a great series of producers and, you know, you you work on it. And even in, you know, we'd done the show multiple times and this is its second run off Broadway. Even now, with a little bit more time under my belt, you know, we would be in rehearsal and we'd say a line and Joe Tapper, our lead actor, would be like, ah, do we, you know, this this feels a little too too on the nose. Do we need it? And we'd look at it again and be like, no, actually we don't, you know? So it's like anything that, that feels like now we're going to tell you what you should be doing or how you should feel or any of those things you strip away. But I think whenever you do autobiographical work, you have to have other people working with you because they have a great sense of what people actually are interested in and what information they actually need, you know, because we're all slightly unreliable narrators of our own life. And we feel like you have to know all of these things to be able to, to tell a story. When we're doing the line, there's a great, uh, Benjamin has uh, this relationship in his life that fell apart. And it, when I first met him in the show, he had, it was like two songs and a monologue to explain what uh, went wrong. And then uh, eventually now in the show, he just says like, we grew apart, the sex got bad. And no audience has ever questioned what went wrong with that relationship. Like he, he thought he had to explain everything in terms of what it is. And now he just says those two lines and all audiences go like, yeah, I've been in that relationship. Uh, and they move past it. So I just think we don't always know what is necessary. And so I've been really lucky to have collaborators that say, like, I'd love to know more about that. I'd love to dig into this. We don't need any of what you just said. Uh, we can get to the next part. And so I think I have to trust them often because I, I admit that I'm I'm coming at it from not the place of an audience that doesn't know anything. And I think that's really allowed me to to kind of, especially, there, you know, there's parts in this show that like, we just got to get through, 
you know? I mean, you say, like, I went to college, and everyone in college drank a lot. And the audience goes, great, got it. Don't need any more information than that. Um, so, like, that's the type of thing that's been helpful to me. And looking at this latest off-Broadway run and seeing some of the, you know, the big names uh, attached to it, not just yours. And I remember when you were in Phoenix and you were saying, well, you know, well, there was a theory company, I'm going to bring in some really accomplished, in some cases, really well-known people um, that maybe we haven't seen before, at least on a regular basis in in Arizona. I suppose it's a life advice question. How did you uh, <laughs> how did you build all these relationships and how have you been able to maintain them, you know, not just on a level of professional respect, but obviously these people think even more highly of you than that. We're really lucky. We had two openings for the white ship in New York uh, because there were so many people that wanted to come to it. And, you know, we were able to have Edie Falco and Hank Azaria and Jason Biggs and Oscar Isaac and um, Bobby Cannavale and, you know, all these kind of big name celebrities come to the opening and support and, you know, that's always been my goal. My goal has always been, I always want to run a local theater that the world pays attention to, right? And so the idea is that whenever we do work, it's always for our local audience. It's always for the people that are in the audience. But there's something about civic pride that I feel like is a larger thing for people to be able to tap into. And that takes a certain level of just, I think, national notoriety to be able to, to people to buy into it. I, you know, I have to think in Arizona, when the Diamondbacks went to the World Series, there's suddenly a lot of people wearing Diamondbacks gear that hadn't been wearing it two years beforehand when they had their you know 20 game losing streak. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because civic pride plays a huge role in, in rallying a city around something and getting a little bit of national publicity, you know, uh, some of these stars lending their name to it goes a long way. And that's what I've always wanted to do wherever I am. And I feel like for the white chip, we were so lucky to have all of this support. Um, you know, Hank Azaria, if you go on his Instagram page, he did this beautiful next day kind of talk about like what it was like to be at opening and how supportive he was of the piece. And, you know, that makes a difference that moves tickets and that moves people that moves awareness that gets people to talk about it more and more. And I feel like that's really the key for what theater is going to be. There's a lot of conversations about why subscriptions are down nationwide and i think part of it is the answer to that is going to be like how do you tap into something bigger than like do i like plays or not like plays it's <laughs> all going to be about like does is the city excited about this are the people excited about this does is it kind of a bigger realm than theater goers and so we're really lucky with the white chip to have hank posting about it jason biggs posting about it now these people talking about it in kind of bigger circles to let people aware about it. And but the great thing is with this play, it's it's like sort of about selling tickets to the show and more it's just about the message that that recovery is possible. And so like, you know, actually if you hear that recovery is possible and you don't buy a ticket to the show, then we were a total success. So I feel like that that also helps us to get these people involved because they see kind of the bigger thing that we're going for. Then when it comes down to something like the white ship that is so personal, how important are our reviews? Let's just say the reviews for it were good, but not great. Would you still feel that way about making sure that the message gets out there? I mean, it's obviously easier to get the message out if more and more people like it and more and more people talk about it. But is there anything more or less relevant about a review when it comes to a play like this, where you've done so much personal work on it and there is so much affection for it? You know, I... This is part of, I think, what the the future of of theater is. 
we're at a time, right, that people feel like the world is on fire and that they want to figure out how do they support the things that are important to them. And, you know, I think you've we've seen kind of fundraising for shows around certain topics that people feel like this is an important story to get out. And it can still be done joyfully and fun. I mean, important doesn't have to be the, the boring word that it sounds like. But, you know, I, I went and saw... On Broadway, my good friend Nail Nasir is in Prayers for the French Republic, and that feels like such an important story right now to be talking about the history of Jews in France and the things that they've faced. You understand why for that show, you know, it got it got middling reviews in The New York Times, and that did not stop people from supporting it, from attending, from getting the word out, because they feel like that's the type of thing that... Uh, they can support and they can get involved with. And it feels like an important story to have right now. My wife has a credit card where every time she uh, buys a certain amount of things, they plant a tree. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with having a credit card, but it, it allows her to feel like she's doing more and more. And at a time that it feels like we should all be doing everything that we can, plays that can tap into that, I think are really succeeding. And so, you know, when people say like, oh, it's 2023, like theater is... People aren't going to theater. It's a dying art form. It's like 100% not true. I mean, we are sold out every night. Prayers for the French Republic is sold out. And I think it's because it's tapping into a conversation. You know, it's not just plays for the sake of plays. It's not just a light comedy for the sake of light comedy, which, uh, you know, I feel like so many people in their programming have reverted back to like, we're nervous. So let's play it more conservative. Oh, that didn't work. So let's be more conservative and see if that works. Oh, that didn't work. Okay, let's be more conservative. Oh, we closed. You know, is, is so many of the pattern that you see theaters doing. And in fact, people are smart. People want to come. They want to engage. They want to talk about it on the way home. They want to talk about it the next day. So I feel like reviews help to get the word out. Reviews, of course they do. I mean, you know, we got a New York Times critic pick and it helps because it's suddenly in more places people to talk about and you know we've gotten now two reviews that say this play or I got three reviews that say this play will save lives and uh I, I feel like that's that's a big statement to make but it, it does you know that catches the eye of people so it does make a difference in terms of getting the word out but I feel like what we're tapping into and other plays are tapping into is how do you engage a community a city a nation around a conversation the example I think about the most that I we try to model ourselves after it, and I feel really lucky. Daryl Roth is one of our producers, and she was one of the producers on The Normal Heart, which if you don't know, was a play that played in the 80s at the public. And at the time, Reagan would not talk about AIDS. He just considered it a, a gay cancer and felt like it was not of public interest. And so they produced this play at the public. Larry Kramer, the playwright, stood out front of the public and handed out, you know, flyers with information about what AIDS was to every person that attended. And by the end of that run, President Reagan had had to acknowledge the AIDS crisis in our country. Now, when we talk about addiction, more people died this past year of overdose than died of AIDS at the height of the AIDS crisis. And so we're trying to mirror the same level of galvanizing a community or at least a conversation into paying attention to what it is. And so that's why we're grateful to have Daryl. Daryl did the the normal heart and Daryl is doing our show. Uh, and so be able to have that conversation happening with our audience, it, 
makes it, and this is the, the longest way around to answer your question, but it's to say that I feel like what we're doing, we're trying to be bigger than a play. We're trying to be bigger than did the audience like it? Did the reviews like it? Of course, you know, we're shallow people. So we want the audience to like it and we want the reviews to like it. But also at the same time, we want to do something bigger, which is about a national conversation. For years, artists uh, have been written about musicians, different realms in in the in the creative arts, and there's been a discussion of, okay, if someone is on a particular substance, does that help in seeing something a little bit different? Does it help in in the creative process? In the time that you've been sober, have you was was there was it bumpy for you initially to think I'm not going to be as creative as I was? Were you worried about things like that? And what have you seen as your a sober person who I presume is leading a, a life that you're you're more comfortable with. So I feel like one of the myths that artists tell themselves or is kind of baked in, uh, and we talk about this a little bit in the play, is that you have to be a little self-destructive in order to be the true artist that you are. You know, nobody wants a sober Jack Kerouac. Nobody wants a sober Hunter S. Thompson. And if you look at the Pulitzer Prize winning writers of the last 40 years, like 95% of them are drunks. And, you know, we even have like the great writers of, of America where like he was an amazing writer. I know he put a shotgun in his mouth and ended his life, but what a brilliant writer, you know? And so we <laughs> kind of, we kind of put this all together in terms of um, how destructive we feel like it is. And so, you know, one of my real inspirations is Terrence McNally, right? Five time Tony winning playwright, uh, maybe the one of the greatest playwrights of our time. He got sober, and then he wrote Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune, which is you know one of his great one of our great plays of all time as Americans. And so he's a great example of like you you think you are holding yourself back uh, by getting sober, but really you've kind of unleashed the the best version of you. And what version of an artist doesn't have to be present and pay attention and understand how they feel and, and be able to listen to collaborators and not have their ego get in the way. And so, you know, I think, um, I, you know, for a long time, it was a great excuse. It was a great excuse to keep using is to say, you know, but I'm an artist and this is part of what the deal is. And therefore, I have to sit at a bar every night from five to two in the morning. Like, it doesn't make any sense. But it's part of the myth that we all tell ourselves about what makes great art and so once you get sober you realize like oh no now i can i can really dig in and and honestly the you know if i think about the shows that i did when i i was drinking a ton i always think like well it didn't affect my work and now looking back you're like well it totally did it all could have been better it all was a little sloppy or a little you know, unexamined in, in places. And, you know, I just told myself, well, it's not affecting my work, but it was, it really was. And so now I'm uh, able to to be much more present in terms of the work that I have. You know, and, and part of that is also like, I'm a parent now. I couldn't be a parent when I was using before. And being a parent makes me a better artist, but that wouldn't have been part of what I, I was able to accomplish before. You're an artist. You've been an artist for a long time. You've been artistic director. You've done all sorts of things in the in the realm of theater. With what you're doing in Florida now, there is the artistic aspect of it, but there's also the recovery project part of that. What is the recovery project, and how does that blend into to the work you're doing as an artist? There's like two uh, two parts to it, right? One is the recovery project at Florida Studio Theater, which we're doing, and then also I'm working with 
Live Tampa Bay, which is an organization that is dedicated to reducing the number of overdose deaths in the Tampa Bay area by 50% over the next five years. And those and I'm running the anti-stigma division of that. And so they all come together, which is my belief that artists set the national narrative for how we understand things and that we really have to start with artists if we're going to figure out how do we conquer anything. There were all these great studies that were done during the pandemic that I was really inspired by that talked about how do national narratives change. And they studied gay marriage, right? If you remember, Barack Obama ran for president and was against gay marriage. And now you can't say what he said and run for city council as a Democrat, right? Even in Florida, even in Florida, you can't say it. <laughs> um, and so it's like, wow, that was in our lifetime. That's in our lifetime that national narratives have changed. And so they did these studies about how is that possible? I mean, you know, you live in Arizona. Marijuana is legal. Gambling is uh, allowed online. None of this would have you would have thought 20 years ago would ever have been possible, right? And so the answer that many of these studies came up with was the arts, which is to say that Ellen came out and then Will and Grace and Modern Family. And next thing you know, like national narratives on TV changed. And so that's how we kind of, artists are always how we understand where we are and who we are. And there's a bit of celebrity and pop culture and that, but it really changes how we feel about the stories and, and the world that we're in. So my goal is to really try to use the arts to battle addiction. And my hope is that in 20 years from now, none of these organizations need to exist because we've done the exact same thing. We've changed national narratives. And the reason I'm running the anti-stigma division for Live Tampa Bay is that stigma is the thing that keeps people sick. I mean, it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what things we have in place in terms of social services, in terms of you know, ways to get help in terms of the type of help that you can get. If people are, uh, if people are afraid to ask for help, if people feel like that they are going to get fired or they're going to be mocked in terms of coming forward in terms of an issue. Uh, so I feel like the first thing we have to do is remove the stigma of what it is. And so I'm, I'm really grateful to work with a, a bunch of great people at, at both places who understand that this is kind of the, maybe the biggest thing of our lifetime i mean so here here are two who are two fun facts that are kind of mind-blowing <laughs> when you first hear so the first one is that someone dies of addiction in our country every three minutes and the second one is that fentanyl is the largest killer of people 18 to 45 so you're more likely to die of fentanyl than you are to die in a car accident in our country which is amazing because even if you don't use fentanyl, you are statistically more likely to die of it. That shows you how many people have, are dying of it on a daily basis. And, you know, you get those facts and you're like, oh my God, we, why is this not every third article? I mean, how is that possible? And we're not talking about it, that it's not in our cultural conversation. And that's because deep down inside, it's not there because we all sort of believe that it's a moral failing. And the people that are, you know, having struggles with it, well, they sort of kind of made some poor choices along the way that uh, maybe this is why they're there. And you begin to realize this comes back to the normal heart, that we are mirroring the conversation from the 80s around AIDS, which is to say that, you know, that people believe that maybe it's about choices you've made and that's why you're there, uh, which is 100% not true. 
And so like that's the thing that we're working on with these organizations is to really try to break down stigma so that people understand like if you know with any disease if you don't talk to anybody about it it yes it will kill you but if you have early detection early conversation education that recovery is possible that you can live a long life with it but yes you do have to face it when it happens let me ask you the, a final question which is obviously you have very close ties here to Arizona and you did a great job with Arizona Theater Company were some of these things that you wanted to do not necessarily possible if you stayed here or were there other reasons for moving on you know i we will always love our time in in arizona and you know like listen when we got there the place was struggling to make payroll right like we were trying to figure out how to keep it going and then on the day that i announced we had two and a half million dollars in the bank and so uh we'll always be grateful of our time you know we miss the people there we miss the desert I didn't think that the dry heat was as much of a thing until we came to Florida and it's like wet heat. And now we miss the dry heat all the time because you have to shower constantly when being here. Um, and I, I just, you know, I think to really tackle this on a national level, we needed to be in a place um, with organizations that I think were really dedicated to it. And so that was, you know, part of what our move is. But we will always love our time in Arizona and and feel really grateful. And, you know, you can't tell, but I'm wearing my Phoenix Suns shirt today to try to rep a little bit <laughs> of, our, of, you know, our missed love of being there in the, uh, the Valley and in Tucson. Sean Daniels, his autobiographical comedy, The White Ship, is now playing off-Broadway. He's obviously doing great things in theater in Florida and with the Recovery Project as well. And we know him as the former artistic director of Arizona Theater Company. Sean, it was really an honor to talk to you. Thanks again. Oh my God. Thank you so much. Special thanks once again to Sean Daniels, having a lot of success in theater. Again, The White Ship is playing off-Broadway into March. And I had a chance to talk with Sean several times during the course of my years in public radio. Always a fun conversation, as you can tell. Very thoughtful guy. Well, that'll do it for this edition of my Substack Pivotal Voices podcast. Music provided by Epidemic Sound. I'm Steve Goldstein. <laughs>